Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, everyone. We have had a new, exciting rebrand. You may have noticed we are now the History Hit Warfare podcast. With me, as per usual, your host, James Rogers. But we've got a new, exciting, broader focus. Each week three times a week, we're going to bring you episodes on the First and Second World War as per usual, but we now touch on even more secret conflicts of the Cold War, the hidden aspects of the War on Terror, and everything warfare from our recent history. So stay tuned and be sure to like, follow, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, we're taking a journey back to the birth of our nuclear world. In 1945, we know that President Truman took that decision to drop two atomic bombs, one at Hiroshima and one at Nagasaki. Yet, how did he come to this decision? What strategic calculations were made? Were other targets rejected, including some of those in Germany? And how did this decision impact the great power relations that got ever more tense during the Cold War? In fact, how does this monumental decision continue to impact our world today? Well, to discuss all, we have my old friend and nuclear history expert, Dr. Jean-Francois Belanger. JF has been a fellow at McGill, at Yale, and now at the University of Waterloo in Canada, where he's working on his new book, Why Competence Matters, Counterproliferation and Deterrence. He is the perfect person to talk us through this nuclear history. So enjoy, and please like, follow, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hi JF, how are you doing? I'm doing very good, thank you. How are you James? I'm good, but I am missing, longing for our days in New Haven at the Regal Beagle pub at lunchtimes and I miss your pedantic yet excellent coffee making. <laughs> Thank you very much. I do miss our time there. I do miss the ability after a hard day's work to cross the street and go have a burger and a beer at the Beagle with some very loud sport. It was great. It was a great time. It wasn't after a half day's work, but we can lie to the world. It's all right. That's absolutely fine. It, oh, I'm sorry. World, it was at lunchtime. <laughs> it was at lunchtime. So, I mean, apart from uh, barista and a lunchtime alcoholic, you're also a nuclear expert. Yes, on both of those statements. (laughs) And all three go together so well. 
They do, they do. When you study nuclear weapons, I think it takes a special type of personality. But I'm still there. I'm continuing working on the practice of coercion and how nuclear weapons have a role to play in this. I'm finishing a book on how preventive attacks against proliferators are not as common as we expect them and the reason why, shocking the entire field with how brilliant but how sensical my argument is. But I'm also, I think... The key in the world is diversification and being able to follow with the times. So as you know, I've been working a little bit on cybersecurity as well, looking at how do we work cybersecurity or cyber attacks on critical infrastructure within our understanding of war, within our understanding of what constitutes an attack and so on and so forth, and how far decision makers are willing to go to answer the cyber attack? Are we starting to see them on the same footing as other type of strategies and or not techniques, but items or things that we use for war, right? Well, I'm excited. Let's jump straight into it because as President Biden takes office, it seems like the ideal time to start to revisit a bit of nuclear history and the way in which nuclear weapons have changed the world. But before we go into that, update us. What's happened over the last four years under President Trump? A lot. So an interesting fun fact is when I started my, truly my master's degree, and then I moved to my PhD, a lot of what I was hearing was that I should probably change field. I mean, stay in political science, but the nuclear question was done. The nuclear question is over. We should move elsewhere. The Cold War is done. We don't have that many nuclear countries anymore. We don't have that many proliferators anymore. And then this was kind of amplified, I would say, in 2009 with Barack Obama's speech in Prague, if I remember correctly, arguing that he's a pragmatist. He's not going to see the end of nuclear weapon in his lifetime, but he hopes to be setting up the stone to reach that objective. And it seems that there was this collective effervescence that was like, yes, we're moving away from nuclear weapons. There was this James Acton and I, George Perkovich authored this 100-page document arguing that denuclearization was now. It was a big moment. And then I'm kind of glad I stuck to it because then 2016 rolled around the Trump presidency. We've had the North Korean crisis, as we've seen, probably the closest we've been to the potential for nuclear retaliation or nuclear attack in my lifetime, certainly, but we can close, right? And with North Korea, we reopened the whole box of what is the role of nuclear weapons in world politics, but also how should we engage with them? What should be done with them? It seems that we're also putting on the table, again, this idea of these two status of nuclear powers, right? You have the P5 plus one that are accepted and it's kind of fine they're a responsible state and so on and then you have a slew of other nuclear states that we don't want to see that we characterize as irrational and so on and that are de facto dangerous right it's also this kind of discourse that we have with iran right so we had iran that was proliferating had been proliferating for a long time and suddenly in 2015 entered the gcpoa which colloquially is understood as the iran nuclear deal that was negotiated by the Obama administration, decried right away by the Republicans, mostly because they argued that the Iranian got a much better deal than the Americans got. And if we're entirely honest, I think that's right. But it's also, it's what it is in negotiation. When you want more than the other, your deal is not as good as the other. But, and I bring it up because President Trump, as a lot of Republican candidates at the time, were angry at the deal and wanted to rip it off. Trump 
History showed us that it was not the case, but at the time, Ed argued that he didn't want to get out of it. He wanted to renegotiate it. He ended up leaving it, I believe, in 2018, which was problematic, and we are still now on uncertainty. They have restarted enriching uranium, but now how far and how long and to what level is a question that remains to be seen. But we're there. What else did the Trump administration give us? They left the INF Treaty, which was particularly important during the Cold War because it removed from the playing field intermediate-range ballistic missiles, which were at the peak of the Cold War seen as probably one of the most destabilizing weapon. The U.S. said that it was because Russia was cheating. Russia says that they continued proliferating because the U.S. were cheating. But everybody knows that it's a question of China whose arsenal is made of what we call IRBMs and are not interested to go into arms control. Maybe the most ominous to me is that at least two things happened that successively were troublesome. The first one was when India attacked position within Pakistan following, I don't want to say skirmishes, but they ended up attacking what was for them a known terrorist camp within Pakistani territory, which we had never seen. It was the first time that a nuclear power struck targets within another nuclear power's territory, which put everybody on edge. Not to be overdone, we had another Chinese-Indian conflict in May 2020, very recently, where the Chinese moved troops into contested territory with India, again, being a form of aggression that we have rarely seen between nuclear power. So I want to reassure listeners that I do not think we are on the verge of nuclear war, but we are at a time where arms control is losing its luster. Smaller powers are seeing the effect of American hegemony and trying to find ways to be more autonomous in their foreign policy, and nuclear weapons remain a way to be able to do that. If you ask North Korea why they never denuclearized, they'll likely point you to Libya and to Iraq right, as prime examples of leaders who decided to forego nuclear weapons and are now not here anymore to argue with us about whether it was a good thing. You've taken us so masterfully through the events of the last four years. Let's see if we can learn from history. We can try and make a more positive future by drawing on some of those lessons that occurred during the World War years and right up until 1945, 46, and then even into the 1950s. So, take us back. Should we start with the Manhattan Project? Should we go back even further? Do we need to go back before the US joined the Second World War? When did nuclear weapons first emerge? Well, there's a few starting points that we could do. I recommend to the listeners who are interested into what we're not going to talk today much, which is nuclear strategy, to go read Lawrence Friedman's The Evolution of Nuclear Strategy. That is a wonderful book that basically shows us how a lot of early nuclear strategy needs to be seen from the point of view of air campaign strategies that were a rollover. So basically, nuclear weapons appear, they're new, we don't know what to do with them, but we need to put them in bombers so that they are useful. So what do we know with bombers? Well, we know air campaigns and we know air strategy. So we were going to go back to this and use this as our baseline for nuclear strategy. However, this is a tease because this is not what we're talking about today. I think we'll start in 1939. We could start in many, many places, but I think for us, it's the discovery of fusion by Straussman and Hahn 
that is really our starting point because it's the moment where I think, like most people think, the nuclear age actually began, right? Because it brought two things to the fore. It brought the idea that nuclear energy, efficient in particular, could be used as a weapon. Those are German scientists. So we're in 1939. What is problematic with German scientists discovering fission? That they could make a weapon for Germany. And that was one of the fear in the United States. And I'm not going to say that it is the sole reason why Franklin Roosevelt moved ahead and had the Uranium Committee of the National Academy of Science put together in 1939. But I would say that it's probably one of the consideration. It was one of the way to bridge a gap between the government and the scientific community at a time where it was especially needed, not for the war effort, the US is not yet in the war, but the possibility when you see what's going on in Europe, the possibility is there. So I want to start there because the interesting thing that we have is a report from that committee that was declassified a few years ago, I think in 2015. The report by the committee came out on May 1941. And in it, they discuss that, yes, we could be using nuclear energy for an explosive device. However, there's a big caveat. We need to be able to find ways to get highly enriched uranium out of uranium-238. And to be able to put that effort together, Vannemar Bush and James B. Conan would put together what we call the S-1 Committee. And the S-1 Committee is really what will slowly, and the work being done there is what will move on to 1942, to two crucial memos. But before I do that, let's stop one second, pull back, and see what's on the table in 1941, right? I jumped the shark a little bit. But in the summer of 1941, the Germans invade the Soviet Union. They do. Operation Barbarossa. Yes. Brutal stuff. Exactly. Big turning point. What else happened at the tail end of 1941? Oh, God. So much happened in December 1941. But one thing in particular that pop culture has put everywhere for us. Pearl Harbor. America joins the war. Is this what we're talking about? This is what we're talking about. Pearl Harbor. All right. I've got one question right. (laughs) Pearl Harbor (laughs) happened and... Well, first, the idea that the Americans could stay out of the war pretty much vanishes with Pearl Harbor. Although the World War II decision-making is not my area, but I would probably argue that by 1941, it was kind of inevitable. Maybe inevitable is too strong a word, but it seemed highly likely. But yes, so the idea that the U.S. would stay out of the war vanishes, but also the other idea of atomic weapon vanishes. It's no longer something that could happen, it becomes something that will happen. And we see it in 1942, right? We'll just quick fast forward two memos, because this is a history podcast, and I thought I'm going to take out my memos and my sources. Vannemar Bush sends two memos to Roosevelt, one in March, one in December 1942. And at the suggestion within those memos, the entire Manhattan Project is going to be transferred to the War Department which really is where it entered the war effort. It's really where it entered the war thinking, but it's also where the fun starts to disappear. And we also see a speed up of the project, right? Because at this time, the Americans were afraid that the Germans were going to be able to develop nuclear weapons before they did. So they set funding aside, secret funds, to ensure that the Manhattan Project is going to deliver six atomic bombs by 1945. Now, this is a massive enterprise. I think I cannot overstate how massive this thing was. At the full swing of it in 1944, we have 125,000 people working for this. 
It's massive. I think, if I remember correctly, reading somewhere, something close to 400,000 people at one point or another will have worked on the Manhattan Project. It's massive. And they have a tight schedule. The idea is to be able to deliver bombs starting on March 1945. And we're thinking about two things, two devices. And anyone that has studied a little bit of history is not going to be surprised by this. We're talking about a gun-type device, and we're talking about an implosion device. A gun-type device that will end up being used against Hiroshima, which was codenamed Little Boy, in October 6, 1945. And Fat Man, which was the implosion device, using plutonium instead of uranium, that is going to be used over Nagasaki on August 9th. However, and I think it's important to mention, and it will color the rest of what we're going to talk about, is this preconceived notion, and you hear this often, I think, in either movies or fiction, that it was an idea to stop the war, right? The idea that Curtis LeMay came up to the president and told them that it would take, if I remember correctly, it's about nine months to stop the Pacific campaign. But by that, what they meant is that they would have carpet bombed most cities and then the Japanese are going to surrender. And then came the idea that then nuclear weapons were said to be like, well, then maybe we can do some form of shock and awe and it's going to force them to do it. But we have evidence that as early as 1943, the Americans were debating using nuclear weapons on Japan, especially against the Japanese Navy and Truck Harbor. So the idea of using nuclear weapons in war is not born out of this last-minute strategy to stop a costly Pacific. I mean, the outcome may have been that, and part of the decision-making would have been to make the Japanese surrender faster. However, the idea to use nuclear weapons in conflict and as part of strategy came from before that. Even in 1943, the Americans were thinking of using nuclear weapons. They don't have them yet, but the idea is that when we get them, we could use them on Germany. It was decided against because the problem is they knew that the German had a program of their own. And if for some reason the bomb did not explode, they would give a pretty good prototype to the German scientists to break apart and use. So they decided not to. This is a very long-winded recap. I'm getting to the nugget. There's two things as the Manhattan Project is underway that becomes important questions. The first one is, is this inevitable for nuclear weapons to be used in war? And there's debate in the scholarly community as to whether Truman assimilated this idea that using nuclear weapons in war was inevitable from Roosevelt and his previous administration or whether he came to it on his own. And as we know, Truman was not particularly fan of atomic weapons because of the destruction that they brought. But this is this one current. The use of nuclear weapons in conflict is this preordained thing. And at the other side of it, there's a clear-headedness about having essentially gotten the genie out of the bottle and that it would be very difficult to put it back. And by that, I mean the nuclear monopoly. For a very short years, four years, in fact, the American were the sole proprietor of nuclear weapons. But most in the U.S. government were cognizant that it was not going to remain that way for too long. And what should be done to either curb the spread of nuclear weapons or reduce the instability 
that more nuclear weapon, they thought, would bring on international politics. And these two strands, I think, interweave very well throughout nuclear history. But there's a lesson there, right? And maybe this is something that Stalin picks up, because we know that Stalin probably knew about the American atomic weapons before Truman did. It became no surprise to Stalin. But do you think he took a lesson from the fact that the US didn't want to drop their bombs on Germany, a country which might have nuclear weapons or be very close to getting them, and instead drop them on a country which did not have nuclear weapons? Is there a lesson there? Because if we look through history, and correct me if I'm wrong, but nuclear weapons have only ever been dropped on countries that don't possess them. So does Stalin start to think, well, we need to get this bomb and we need to get it quick? So yes, you're entirely correct. The only usage of nuclear weapons that we've seen has been used against a non-nuclear state. And it's interesting because I'll get to Stalin in one moment, but you and I were at Yale, and I think it's important to mention, and not just to sound as it sounds, but because the early nuclear thinking in the United States, happened at what would become eventually through a variety of routes, the ISS, the International Security Studies, where James and I spent almost two years together, was the big think tank in 1945 that started to think about nuclear strategy and what to do with nuclear weapons. Bernard Brody was at Yale at this time. And there's this story that you see of it everywhere. He was a naval historian at the time. And then he picks up the newspaper... I think it's on August 7th and famously tells his wife that everything he studied up till now is now obsolete. And then we have this famous sentence from him where he's argued that the goal of state was before nuclear weapons to think about how to win wars. Now the goal of state is to figure out how to avert them because the cost of deterrence failure, right? The I'm using this as a very, very broad and loose sense deterrence as in being able to prevent war or action from an adversary that would lead to conflict became the number one thing because of the incredible damage that a nuclear exchange could do. We have evidence that around the 1940s is when the Soviet became really interested into developing a nuclear program. And it got underway during World War II. However, they did not detonate a bomb until 1949. It took a little bit of time. What I think Stalin took, and I'm taking your question completely elsewhere because that's what I want to answer, is what Stalin took was also this idea of trying to keep the monopoly as much as possible. Because we know that very early on, the Chinese approached Stalin asking him for nuclear weapons, to which he denied. I am not going to give you either the know-how or the technology. But then we fast forward a few years, we have the Korean War, which is, again, and to your point, it's not a usage of nuclear weapon, but it's probably the most overt threat that we've seen of using it in conflict again, which was during the Korean War, the U.S. Eisenhower and Dual Down, either or. We're discussing the use of nuclear weapons because mostly that if you don't use them, we may create a situation where nobody will want to use them in the future. And we want to avert that and so on. And there was discussion of using it to push back the Chinese, to which Mao famously said that the bomb is but a paper tiger, kill 200 Chinese and 200 more are going to come or something horrific like this. However, 
no matter what Mao said in public, in private, after the Korean War, he approached the Soviets again, with Khrushchev in power at this time, asking him for know-how technology. And this time, the Soviet Union agreed to help. Probably because around 1954 is also the time that Adam for Peace is put together by Eisenhower, making the diffusion of nuclear technology for peaceful use, as in civilian usage, a bit more common, but probably stressing an adversary. But this is what I think. It's interesting that Stalin right away tried to keep the rein on nuclear weapons. But then what I think it prompted as a question, and I'll let you ask it to me, but I'm going to dictate it, is, <laughs> is how did the Americans react to more countries getting nuclear weapons? What did they try to do? What a great question. I know. JF, how did the US react to other countries? <laughs> I think we need just your own podcast where you just sit in front of a mirror and you interview yourself. But yeah, how did the US react to other countries getting nuclear weapons? Thank you. I mean, I gladly take you up on this fair offer of co-hosting. <laughs> Joking aside, it was a bit different than what we would have expected. Which is what I think is interesting. Because the most interesting thing is the UK were really instrumental in the Manhattan Project. They were an integral part of it. But because of the McMahon Act that the US had at the time, they could not share anything from it with their allies that actually put resources in making it happen. To the disgruntlement of the UK, who eventually became a nuclear power all of their own in 1952. But I would say the period from 1945 to 1957, to the exception of a time for peace, saw the American mostly interested in unilaterally restraining nuclear power. We're not at the age of sanctions yet. They're not threatening to sanction the UK for wanting a bomb or the French, for example. But if you ask them, they would prefer a world where their adversaries don't get them. And anyway, we have NATO that is a nuclear alliance and is supposed to be where this whole nuclear question is settled. With adversaries, however, it's a bit different. We had throughout the 1940s among the Americans preventive attack plans against the Soviet. Three in particular that have give it to the military for being able to give cool names to these attack plans. You have pincer, broiler, and crankshafts that are essentially plans for all-out preventive attacks that are aimed at destroying industrial centers, using atomic weapons and whatnot, in strategic air attack to be able to destroy strategic infrastructure in the Soviet Union. Now, those plans are not used. Mostly because, and this is an interesting fact of history, in the movies, intelligence is not that great because those in power don't listen to what the underlings are sending to them until very last minute, a very persuasive protagonist is able to sell that the intelligence is actually worthwhile and something needs to be done. In this case, intelligent technology was not what it is today. And the U.S. were actually taken by surprise when the Soviet Union detonated its first bomb in 1949 which prompted President Truman on September 23 would come out and have a message that says that with this, we need to develop an enforceable international control of atomic energy policy, which was qualified by Secretary of State Dean Akison not too long after saying that the control of nuclear energy was part of a broader American foreign policy that would ensure, and I quote him directly here, 
the preservation of peace, which touches back to the fears under the Manhattan Project, but also how to, to deal with nuclear energy. But it also kind of highlights to us that allies and adversaries, when we reach the 50s, are not treated as well. China is another good example. President Kennedy was particularly averse to nuclear proliferation. He also thought that attacking China was not going to be particularly problematic. He saw this as a fairly easy thing to do, to send a few planes, attack critical infrastructure that were part of the nuclear program, and then come back. Now, the consideration however, out of this were political, right? How would the U.S. look as aggressor in this case? And so on and so forth. But the thinking was all the same. And I think this is the key takeaway from these little examples before we move to the Allies, is that the Americans, but we also have evidence from the Soviets, fear that a spread of nuclear weapons not only would be dangerous for the security. The Soviet Union now, for example, could attack Allies. During the Korean War, the fear was that the Soviet Union could force London out of the war with nuclear threats, which would be very problematic for the American strategy. So this, but you see the beginning of the idea of nuclear coercion, that it would be possible for either adversaries of equal strength, but there's also thinking of adversaries that are weaker, like China, to be able to constrain U.S. foreign policy choices because they have nuclear weapons and they can threaten to use them. It really is, at least outside of the U.S. using it, we're seeing the birth of the practice of nuclear coercion right there and what it could do to the U.S. because it was everywhere. In the Chinese case, we were afraid that they could use it to forcefully reunify Taiwan, right? Because at the time, the Chinese leadership that had fled the mainland was all in Taiwan. But it was also at the height of the idea that we need to stop the spread of communism and the forceful spread of those aims by the Chinese military which with nuclear weapons they thought would be a bit more easier. But it's also, and I think this is a key point, that it would embolden them, that countries that may have had more restrained aims would become more adventurous with nuclear weapons, right? So we saw, well, the Americans, but also, as I said, the Soviet. Yes, Khrushchev was okay with helping the Chinese get nuclear weapons, but all of this was done under the thumb of the Soviet Union. Like the idea was to create extended deterrence through the Chinese, right? They would be the extension of the Soviet deterrent power, but under Soviet control, which a very famous bat scene in Khrushchev's memoir tells us that Mao was not particularly a fan of, screaming at Khrushchev that they're not the little brother and that they are independent. And in that meeting, he refused the creation of submarine ports, that the Soviet were ready to build because they wanted a, a way to project power a bit better. But maybe years of pent-up aggression on Mayo's part on being treated as an underling, having to, at a strategy of the Soviet Union, to have the Chinese act in a way that was more concordant to their own political ambitions, led us to that. A second tier partner. You know, the Soviet Union is the big brother here, isn't it? And it will control how these weapons are used. I suppose a bit like you could say how the US relates to the UK's nuclear capability today. Yes. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right. So Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient 
history, we've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. But it must have been pretty tempting for the U.S. as powers started to crop up around the world with nuclear weapons just to have... A first use policy that meant you could wipe their capability off the face of the earth so that you didn't have to see it as a threat. Now we know that General Curtis LeMay was pretty bellicose at the best of times. Was there ever any plans realistically for US first use? We did, at the onset of the nuclear age, we did, especially in the war plans that we've seen against the Soviet Union. Here's an important distinction. Were there plans to use nuclear weapons as a first strike? Yes. How credible was it that these plans would be used against a nuclear power? I'm no longer that sure. Now, we have evidence that it was discussed. But every time I read these documents, what I wonder is the following. How much of this is standard military procedures? And by that, I mean... The military is designed to be able to put every single options on the table for their commander. And they're not the one making decisions. And we also know, and I think it colors the analysis, that I think you'll agree with the words. Curtis LeMay was incredibly trigger happy. 
probably a lot more when it came to nuclear weapons, but also the various bombing campaigns that he supported than others. But when you look, for example, at the top, Truman, for example, was very averse to using nuclear weapons, which he thought, because of the destruction, but also the kind of people it would kill, like women and children, were problematic in war. And we have, in political science, we have a theory for this, which is called a nuclear taboo by Nina Tannenwald, that argued that these sentiments were very present and over time crystallized to create a prohibition on the use of nuclear weapons. Now, what I mean by this is it's not a law. It's what we call a norm, right? It's this social constraint that people place on themselves. But the more we place it on ourselves, the more it gains a power of its own, like a structure that pushes back on us. And how can we say this? Well, as I said earlier, we have duels telling us that if we don't use nuclear weapons in Korea, we are going to be facing a situation where we can't use them. And you see it in probably Vietnam. What is different with Vietnam and Japan? Do we see much difference here? It's a long-lasting conflict that the Americans want to leave. Vietnam, it becomes increasingly clear that they cannot get out of this with a victory. Why didn't they use nuclear weapons? They had no quarrel with using them on two cities, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Why didn't they drop a few in known locations of the adversaries that they were fighting? Well, I think, and this is Nina Tannenbaum's argument, that this prohibition crystallized around the 60s and 70s. But the counter-argument is the one that you kind of brought earlier on, that no, but we have plans like pincer, boiler, crankshaft were first used nuclear plans. We have plans and we still have plans, right? I have no doubt that when the Trump administration discussed the bloody nose strategy, that they would have known that there was a risk of nuclear retaliation from the North Koreans, that they probably believed that they could stop via their precise targeting and missile defense. However, I am sure that there's a plan somewhere as to what to do in case that fails, right? So this bloody nose, this is the idea that you can hit North Korea at sensitive sites with conventional precision missiles? Exactly. So the idea in this case was that, I think it was in 2018, after the North Korean continued to test missiles despite repeated demands by the Americans not to, the idea was the next time they shoot a missile, we're going to use with precise conventional weapons, we're going to shoot down the missile sites to show them that it's not acceptable. But then the problem with this kind of action is that when you're on the receiving end, you never know where it's going to stop. And I want to be very clear. I have seen nothing, and no one has seen nothing, that the U.S. consider nuclear use against North Korea. I want to emphasize this. It hasn't come out in the media. It hasn't been discussed. What I am saying is there's a good likelihood that they've had this discussion considering that North Korea may have responded from an attack on its missile sites with nuclear retaliation. Or maybe not. And this is where it gets interesting. This may be not. Because it's also entirely possible that the Americans did not discuss whether they would retaliate with nuclear weapons in case of North Korea attack. I know I'm jumping the shark a little bit, but I do have a story that I think your listeners are going to enjoy. I'm in a scholarly conference in 2006 And on the panel is James Wirtz, who's at the Naval Postgraduate School, who's well known as a technical scholar on nuclear weapons. And he relates to us the story about 9-11, where short after 9-11, 
the Americans seemingly, according to a story, had the evidence necessary to place bin Laden and most of his top advisors and commander in Tora Bora, in a mountain range. They knew exactly where he is. Now, pull up Tora Bora on a map. Look what's around it. It is not prime real estate. One way to nip the entire thing in the bud is to drop a nuclear weapon right over where they're located. You have a very good chance of making sure that Al-Qaeda's leadership is wiped out in that moment. No one in a room that consisted of Colin Powell, Paul Wolfowitz, and the Secretary of Defense at the time of the Unknown Unknowns, Rumsfeld, none of them raised the idea. What does that tell us about the taboo? And I'm not talking about a giant thermonuclear weapon. I'm talking about lower-yield weapon in the area. None of these individuals raised the potential of doing so. It's interesting, isn't it? Because... You know, you go back to that period, which is, to make everyone feel old, it is 20 years ago this year since 9-11. Has it been 20 years already? In 20 years. So you think about just how emotional, how nationally shocking and destructive that was. And even in that moment, that moment when the mainland of the United States has been attacked in a surprise attack since the first time since Pearl Harbor, that even then there isn't that shift to use nuclear weapons. So this leaves me with a question, JF, and maybe put your policy advisor hat on here because we can bring it round full circle. And as Biden now takes office, President Biden what would you advise to him from this history, from all of your knowledge? How can you stop the proliferation of nuclear weapons, but without ever crossing that line of using nuclear weapons yourself? What does the history tell us? So here's the interesting thing. So if I put my policy cap on, I do need to put my political scientist cap on at the same time. And when we think of nuclear weapons, we've had usually these two strands where on the one hand, there's been the argument that we should engage nuclear weapons through more arms control and more confidence building measures. Why? Because in an uncertain world where you cannot know the intentions of the others, speaking to each other and trying to learn of our plans and intentions is probably the best way to stay stable, which was what Thomas Schelling and others had argued, and this is why you've seen uh, effort like sort one, start one, that were all designed in removing from the game weapon systems that were deemed to be unstable at the time. So this was one strand, and the other, has been that, no, the one thing that we can do is to maintain mutually assured destruction against nuclear powers that we deem equal, like the Soviet Union and the Americans did, for example, but compete, right? Because what I've just mentioned is a cooperative effort. The idea is to compete. You want to have an arsenal that your adversary is unable to destroy. So the pillar of what we call mutually assured destruction is this thing that is called a second strike capability. It's this very simple idea 
that you have enough nuclear weapons stashed somewhere that are indestructible in a first strike. So you put them in hardened silos. There are people that dedicated their career to the density of cement of nuclear silos. Put them in submarines that are at sea. Those are two prime examples of how you can stash nuclear weapons away. Or, like Pakistan, put some of them in Afghanistan. I don't recommend that, but it's something you can do. Meaning that if, let's say, the Soviet Union were to attack or the flip side, the Americans were to attack the Soviet Union first, they would be able to destroy some of their arsenal, but not all of them. And then whoever was attacked could retaliate. The problem is, this is based on an assumption that the nuclear balance, the balance of forces of how many nuclear weapons one has versus the other, is sticky. Meaning that it's easy to reach parity, and once you reach that, it's done. But that's not historically correct. We know that it took a solid 10 years for the Soviet Union to be able to reach similar to the amount of weapons that the American have and reach a second strike capability. It's about the same thing and even maybe more for the Chinese, right? So this is a large period of instability that is known. So there's also incentive in this world to compete and instead of thinking we will stay at parity, we will have mutually assured destruction, and at times we're going to remove the items that we want from, that, that we think are problematic, we're just going to get superiority. We'll get as many nuclear weapons as we can, so that like this, we're going to be protected. You can do it for the exact reason that I just gave you now, for security purposes, or you can do it because it's a good policy. Historian Frank Gavin makes a very compelling argument that when the United States wanted to retrench from Europe early in the Cold War, the U.S. needed to reassure allies that they would still be there for them. So how could they do that? Nuclear weapons. We will give you extended deterrence. But to have credible extended deterrence, you need a whole lot of them. So they moved into something more parent. Now, I'm bringing all of this up because I do think that the real world is a little bit of both. You'll always see competition, mostly because of what I said. Every time I read archival documents, I am not shocked because I, <laughs> I know by now, but I'm always impressed by how much uncertainty was in the room about the intentions of the others. And more than this, the uncertainty about what, for example, Moscow was thinking that the American might be doing. They have a pretty good idea of the numbers and of what they have, but there's always that intangible of, but maybe, or but what if, or what could they do? That is a bit problematic. So it's difficult to trust with this kind of uncertainty. And what happens? Well, then you compete because what you can trust is what you can have. So I do think that you'll always see some level of competition between nuclear states. And I don't want to say that I would recommend Joe Biden to keep doing this, but I would also recommend that they compete in the sense that their arsenal until we are able to reach a world where we can get rid of them, or remain modern and usable to maintain this overall veneer of deterrence. However, alternatively, the first thing that I would suggest is to go back to open sky if it's doable. But again, it's difficult. Try to return to the arms control architecture that we had. Because right now, what we have with the tail end of the Bush administration is a lot more proliferation than we've seen in a long time. 
the Americans have deployed tactical nuclear weapons. And what we mean by this is very low yield nuclear weapons that can be used in the battlefield because there's not as much fallout, for example, than a big bomb, right? Which are, big bombs are really city busters. The idea is that you threaten to kill so many people that they prevent conflict. But if you are in a low-level conflict, which we've seen a lot, the problem is they outfitted those in the submarine. How would Moscow know that the warhead being launched at them is a low-yield one when the next one in the rack is a regular one? It's problematic. But the U.S. have done this. The entire debacle with missile defense from the Bush years continued with the Patriot system and the Tahad system under Obama has prompted the Russian of trying to develop nuclear weapons that would circumvent that. It's problematic. So what I would say is this. Return to Iran and go back to the GCPOA, which Iran is ready to do. They were in compliance at the time. The Trump administration left. It was the most involved deal on disarmament that we've ever seen. There was cameras placed in most nuclear facilities and so on. And by all indications, the Iranians were complying. Now, the issue there and the fear was always that the sunset clauses, right, that permits the construction of better refinement and the mining of more uranium and so on and so forth as you go through. But at the end of the day, what's better? Trying to create and foster a better relationship that would make it so the Iranians believe they do not need nuclear weapons in the future or put you in a situation where they'll want it now, which will bring you to war anyway. But the problem is fighting in Iran is not fighting in Iraq. It's not the same terrain. They are accustomed to it. The Americans are not. And more than that, another conflict is not something that anyone wants. So I would return to this. If possible, I would like to see return to open sky. But more than that, I would like a sustained effort to return to arms control. Bringing China in, because if the U.S. and Russia are in, there's a chance that China may be interested in. Maybe, but that's a big maybe. And I will leave you on a controversial note of the rest of the podcast. From all of the history that we've seen, North Korea is not going to denuclearize. Unless you attack them and forcefully remove the weapons, they're not going to denuclearize. That means that if it is the objective you're committing to a protracted conflict with boots on the ground in the region, with everything it entails, knowing that it's a bidden administration will not stomach something like that, I do think it's time to tacitly acknowledge that North Korea is a nuclear power. Now, I understand that due to the past U.S. policies on nuclear proliferation, and don't be fooled by any pundits that told you we were at a moment where denuclearization was possible. At no point in the last four years was it possible because of Libya and Iraq and the history of states that were pushed over afterwards, after denuclearizing. But the problem is, it's a moment where by tacitly acknowledging them, you can bring them in the game and you can try to actually talk about the things that we need to be talking about for more stability. Caps on certain types of missiles, caps on the amount of warheads, cap on uranium production, and so on and so forth, right? Have them commit to no more testing, like officially and so on. But it's not something that is doable 
as long as the main non-proliferator in the system is arguing that denuclearization is the only option. This is the one thing, if I was sitting in front of President Biden, I would try to push, given the lessons that we have from the past. And I suppose it's here where it all comes back down to those moments back in 1945, when the decisions were made not to drop it on Germany, but to drop it on Japan, because Japan didn't have those nuclear weapons. And that's what continues to drive states to cling hold or to aspire to nuclear arsenals. JF, thank you so much. The tour de force of history that you have given us. (laughs) Where can people read more of your work? Thank you very much, James, for your time. I appreciate you making me look good despite all the detours. The most recent thing is we have an edited volume under Bloomsbury that is co-edited by a former colleague of ours, Claire York, in which I have a chapter on the evolving practice of coercion and what it means in the future. And a lot of the examples that I use in the chapter are of nuclear coercion. So for those who are interested in that topic, which is really what I do, would be well served with that chapter. Overall, the book is going to be fantastic. It's about the evolving practices of diplomacy across a whole range of topics. If you enjoyed the talk on the nuclear taboo, the SAGE Encyclopedia of Political Science has an entry by me on the nuclear taboo and its counter argument, which is the tradition of non-use. I'm still working on a book that is on the question of preventive attacks against nuclear proliferators, engaging with the great fact that despite the rhetoric against nuclear weapons and how dangerous and destabilizing they are, In peacetime, we haven't really seen any preventive attacks outside of Iraq. Iraq is the one state. And Syria in 2007, that came to light. But these are the only two states to whom it happens, and I'm trying to answer the question as to why. And I have plenty of articles that are right now in the review and R&R process that I need to go back to actually at some point today. Perfect, JF. Thank you so much. Can't wait to read the book. And you're always welcome on the podcast. Please, I'd love to come back again. Have a good one. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.